Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 6 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm really excited to be bringing you this new season of shows coming to you on the first and third Wednesdays of every month. I have a great lineup of fascinating conversations with incredible musicians, songwriters, guitarists, steel guitarists, drummers, composers, who knows what else. I've been having an incredible time diving deep with these folks, and I know you're going to enjoy listening. Just a reminder that this year I've taken out the short song samples through the show, as things have gotten way more complicated as far as legal use of music goes, so I'll be making an accompanying Spotify playlist to each episode, which you'll find in the episode's show notes and at the website at makersandshakerspodcast.com. So anytime you hear this cute little slide guitar sound, you'll know there's a track to go along with it on the playlist. We have some new sponsors this year, but continue to be largely listener-supported. Your help in keeping the show going is always appreciated, and you can do it with a one-time donation or a Patreon subscription. Patreon is a monthly payment of your choice, and when you sign up for that, you get a bit of added content as well as an ad-free version of the show to listen to. If you don't feel like kicking in any dough, that's cool too, but you can help by subscribing for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or just spread the word by sharing the show, following us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and telling all your pals about it. You can get links to all this stuff, of course, at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Meanwhile, many thanks to our sponsors this season. Please check them out and let them know that I sent you. They are Isotope, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, and Spectra 1964. Hey there, folks and music nerds. Welcome back to season six of the show. This is episode number 133. One of my absolute favorite bluegrass guitar players is on the show this week, Mr. Brian Sutton. I've been trying to get Brian on the show for a bit, so I'm glad it finally worked out. So things are rolling along here, mostly been plugging away in the studio, I've been mixing and doing some sessions, have not been traveling much these days, which I guess I'm sort of thankful for, considering what a crazy scene it is out there, but that also means I have not been playing a lot of live gigs, which kind of sucks. But anyway, we did uh, a bunch of playing a couple weeks back out in Vancouver for some of my new music, and we'll be releasing some videos of all that stuff over the next few months, so that was fun and good to be back with my crew making some noise. Before we get going here, just a reminder that the henhouse hang that you'll hear about on this uh, on this season now has some 2023 dates. I think the ads that get run on here are discussing the 2022 dates, but there's actually 2023 dates. And I know it's a little early, but we are openly booking spots if you're interested in that. The dates are going to be September 25th through 28th, 2023, which is right after Americana Fest here in Nashville, and it's going to be a blast. And... Hope some of you might consider coming and being a part of it. So I first heard of Brian Sutton quite a few years ago when I was getting pretty into bluegrass. 
I don't know, 20 some, uh, 25 years ago or something. I never took the full bluegrass plunge, but I definitely was a fan. And I, for a while, worked really hard on my flat picking chops and dobro playing and all that. And around that time, Ricky Skaggs made a big return to bluegrass. It was sort of before a lot of the other people did. Now there's a cavalcade of people doing bluegrass stuff, but he was kind of the first real country star that that said, I'm going to do some bluegrass. And uh, he released an album that I remember really well called Bluegrass Rules, exclamation mark. Bluegrass Rules, I guess. His band at the time was called Kentucky Thunder, and it was mostly youngsters with just unbelievable chops and feel. The guitar player in that band at the time was Brian Sutton, and I'd never heard of him before then. But it turns out he'd been playing with Ricky for a while at that point, and he'd already had a fairly solid session career but had jumped into this band and toured with them a bunch, which definitely put him on the radar of bluegrass and roots music fans, myself included. Anyway, Brian continued to crop up on credits for albums that I'd see, and I did get a chance to see him at various festivals over the years, and he always totally blew me away with his tone and feel and the way that he was taking flat picking in some really exciting new directions. And since I moved to Nashville about 10 years ago, I hear Brian's name a lot. Usually when there's talk of sessions, he's clearly become the top acoustic player in Nashville and gets most of the calls to fill that role in this town on all the big records that are made here. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing that's pretty unique to Nashville, this idea of being an acoustic player only. And there's a pretty serious history to it. And it's not that Brian doesn't or can't play any electric guitar. He's just the guy when it comes to acoustic guitar. And that's what he gets called for. Someone else generally gets called to play the electric guitar. It's partly so that all of the guitar, electric and acoustic, can go down at once in the session, but also just that he's so nuanced and at such a high level on the acoustic, it makes sense to have him focused on just that. In other cities or music scenes, and when I play on sessions for the less pops stuff, like the Americana stuff that I do, it's not so much like that. I may play electric and acoustic and steel and whatever else. Anyway, it's really interesting to hear how he approaches sessions and how his path led to being where he is now, the top call guy in Nashville, as well as being out on the road lately with Bela Fleck for Bela's My Bluegrass Heart project. Brian's credits also include records for Carrie Underwood, Eric Church, Lyle Lovett, Dirks Bentley, Tim McGraw, Blake Shelton. You get the picture. But at the heart of it, he's just a monster flat picker who's been the International Bluegrass Music Association Guitarist of the Year nine times. He teaches through an online course as well, and he put out a really cool solo album that I really recommend called The More I Learn. That was a few years back, maybe five or six years ago, and that's the last time he made a solo record. You can get info on all this stuff and check out his tour dates at briansutton.com. And lastly, before we get going here, I'd just like to shout out to a few folks who made donations or signed up to the Patreon over the last couple of weeks, Clay Connor and James Tuttle. Many thanks, you guys. I could not do it without you. And just a reminder that for all Patreon subscribers, we are going to be giving away a union tube and transistor C-verb reverb pedal at the end of this season. You just have to be a Patreon subscriber between now and the end of the season, and you'll be entered automatically. All right. So let's get down to it. Enjoy my conversation with Brian Sutton. Since we're blabbing about studios and whatnot, I know that that's kind of an interesting thing about your career that I've noticed, I guess, is that you have really focused on the session yeah. playing side of things. And like as a fan of your playing, I feel like you probably could have made way more records by now under your own name. But sure. Whether you, that's a conscious decision or whether it's just like a matter of 
not having the time because <laughs> you're too busy doing other stuff. I'm just wondering if if the session thing has always been like something that you really wanted to pursue. I feel like it has probably, right? Yeah. I mean, to get a little bit of like historical context, you know, I grew up playing music all the time, you know, just always had a guitar in my hand. And I knew that some kind of career in music was, you know, where I was headed. But I was never really like, oh, I've got to be in a band and I want to travel the the world and play shows and things like that. I mean, I would be inspired by folks like Jerry Douglas and Mark O'Connor and Sam Bush and yep. these people. But I was also equally intrigued by seeing them play on all these records right. that were their own records and certainly other people's records, not even within the bluegrass world, but like people like Skaggs. And that was in this era, too, where there was a lot of like even a Randy Travis record, you know, from the 80s yep. uh, that had Jerry Douglas on it. Or right. Sam Bush or something like that. Like, were you well, aware? Were you like following them oh, to yeah. that extent where you were like, okay, the, I'm getting yeah. that Randy Travis record because Jerry's on it. Plus, I, I just knew Jerry's playing. Yeah. And I could hear him on yeah. these things. And with Ricky Skaggs, too, is kind of crossover yeah. kind of sound. And so anyway, it just sort of helped me be aware that those kind of people were active and, and employed and, <laughs> and, and making music. And I've always also kind of been a guy that really loved playing a lot of different styles. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was, you know, a lot of electric stuff and, of course, a ton of bluegrass with the family and, and was studying jazz and classical oh, throughout the week. Oh, classical, too. Yeah. Okay. Um, classical guitar. And just, again, just kind of really into everything and coupling that with just MTV and, and more of an era where there was live music in prime time and, uh, you know, seeing, you know, like live aids or, or uh, you know, stuff on the Nashville Network and just bands playing live and, and seeing people doing you know, the kind of music that I wanted to play. <clears throat> anyway, all that led to just me looking around uh, our little town there of Asheville, and, and I knew some of the studio folk from records, uh, recordings that my uh, family band had made. So I knew it existed, but I immediately just kind of fell in love with this environment, you know, where people show up and make music, and, and it's, uh, you know, so every, every day, pretty much after my senior year in high school, I would go hang out at this particular studio in Asheville and just get, you know, got to know people just, it was a fly on the wall. I'm like, yeah, this is, this is me. I knew that, you know, that was a route that I wanted to take. And, um, what studio was that? Is that something that's still there? <clears throat> yeah, it's the, well, a version of it is still there. They've moved the, uh, the actual facility. Uh, right now it's called Crossroads, but back in the day it was called Here, Here. Okay. <laughs> uh, H E A R H E R E, Here, Here. And it was primarily gospel. Yes, it's very catchy. <laughs> it was primarily kind of a, a home base for a lot of gospel music that was based out of there. And I didn't really grow up around that. And, and what was what was your connection to that studio? Like, how? well, it's weird. The, my next door neighbor uh, was a piano player named Anthony Berger. Who anybody that's listening that's <laughs> has been into Southern gospel music for 30, 40 years will know he he was like one of the most popular piano players in that in that scene. And uh, as a as an artist or as a like well, a session he side made his person. own records. He was a sideman or okay. a piano player for a real famous quartet called the Kingsman. Okay. But he was my next door neighbor, literally like wow. walk out my back door and there's his driveway. And so he was the guy that I went to and just said, you know, what do you think I ought to do? And he says, just, just come hang out. And so uh, so I did. And just again, just continue to like. Uh, and did you love it? Yeah, loved totally. That, just that. The experience of being in there, mm -hmm. seeing the action. Yeah, and I was the kind of nerdy kid, too, in high school that had basically a double cassette deck, and I would try to, like, you know, layer things that way. I didn't have any kind of multi-track, but just yeah. I kind of knew that that was possible. And just and still to, the, to this day, I'm just sort of fascinated with the fact that, 
music's uh, music gets recorded the way it does, and there's multi-tracks, and you can fix yeah. and edit. And I mean, it's just, there's such a process about it that I'm a fan of and enjoy being part of from day one and to, to, to right now. I just it's surprising it. to me that you never got into the, the recording slash engineering side or producing side more than you have. I know you have a bit, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, I've done a little bit of the producing thing, and I've got I'm Pro Tools. We're all Pro Tools aware enough these days. You yeah. kind of have to be. Uh, but just, you know, as a player, I feel like that's where I hang my hat. Yeah. And, and too, you know, with the scheduling, sometimes you, you will know, too, you know, like when you agree to produce something, it's it's a real commitment of time more than it is anything. Yep. You know, the creative part I love, but it's just hard to, like, carve out a couple of months or more for a record. Right. I've done it, and I'll probably continue to do it here and there. But it's just within the balance of it all, I, I think, I'm you know, I enjoy, again, like playing a lot of different kinds of music with a lot of different kinds of people and just knowing that, you know, on any given week I could be doing all kinds of things and then, again, just go out on the road with Bela Fleck. And so it's, it, the balance of That's it all really so really is the, the key, you yeah. know, where it's not all one thing or the other. I was talking about that just the other day with somebody that was here on another episode and that whole balancing act mm. in career it just seems to be like the 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 never-ending goal of many people myself included yeah it's hard i mean it's uh part of my temperament makeup is is i get not burn out but kind of i don't even say bored but just i enjoy doing a lot of different things i'm kind of fueled and fired by that you know knowing that i can go do a lot of different be involved in a lot of different types of things and a lot of different types of conversations and collaborate that's that's always you know again the like the heart of being a session player is you're really there, at least in this town. It's it's not about going in and just rendering a score. It's like you're there to collaborate and make a part and try to find something that feels valuable to the to the end goal and, and helps the thing along. And I, I really do love all that too. There's not a lot of information out there on your studio activities. There's credits and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But if we could talk about that for a second, because my understanding, and I don't know this for sure, but from what it seems like is you're the you're the top call acoustic guitar player in this town currently like you play on a shit ton of records yeah there's a lot how many sessions a week are you doing is it totally up and down is it it's uh, very up and down especially these these days i think you know because i do kind of keep a foot out in the touring world you know and and i do put a lot of energy into that um i i've historically not done as maybe as much as i could if i'd like just whole hog said i am nothing but a session player there have been seasons or periods of life where i did primarily that but you know in sort of in those heydays you know you could be five days a week you know for several weeks in a row before any kind of kind of break but i think generally the like the current ebb and flow is anywhere between on average two to three days a week you know are you always on acoustic guitar is that what you're called for every time or do you play electric and not yeah these days like 97 percent of the time every time i see you mentioned it's always acoustic guitar and i like i get it obviously (laughs) but it seems like that like that's become the thing that you're known for well i made a decision you know in, in that early day of me hanging out in Asheville. there was a fellow there named david johnson that you know continues to be a big inspiration for me uh, as a multi-instrumentalist, and he played everything very, very well. And that was part of my challenge, too, back in the day, was to to basically be available when he couldn't. So I had to learn all these instruments okay. and, and get a little more aware, you know, kind of turn my jazz and rock and roll chops on electric to more like, okay, who's this guy, Brent Mason, or, or some of these country players that were on records at the time. 
And uh, when I moved to Nashville, that's kind of what I was doing, playing fiddle and electric guitar. And, and oh, you course, played fiddle too. Well, <laughs> <laughs> again, I was I was serviceable as, yeah. a, as a fiddler. Uh, but the point is, is that I was doing all that and, and kind of realized several years into the game of it that like, okay, this, because I can do everything is really not a good thing for uh, career-wise. It's That's interesting. Yeah, that's like, not what you would think. Yeah, I mean, you would think, yeah, I can offer all this stuff, but what really happens in a town like Nashville, at least, which is... You know, if, if they've got the budget to go get the dude that does the thing, <laughs> they're going to go do that. Right. They're not going to spend, you know, a certain amount of money on somebody that does six different things. If, if so, what that means is the kind of records that I found myself working on a lot were fairly kind of low budget records, i.e. not great music. I felt a lot of times I would leave there feeling like, okay, this is probably a good work experience, but this is less than <laughs> musical. And it I feels very feeling. like, yeah. all right, you know. I don't get a break. You know, we cut a track and the and the drummer and the bass player go off and I'm sitting there for another hour and a half but doing stuff and they're like, okay, let's do the next song now. And I'm like, right. wait, <laughs> I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, so there was a lot of this like spinning wheels, like this is not really going anywhere. This, so This is like early Nashville days for you, you're talking about? Yeah, okay. like yeah, late mid to late 90s into the early 2000s and it yeah. finally hit me like if I really want to play on these records that I'm aiming for, I need to do one thing really Which well. Which was top uh, level like yeah. country, country yeah stuff you'll top stuff, 40 right. yeah. nashville stuff commercial so uh, you really had like set your sights on doing that yeah okay well yeah. again back to the early days of like seeing jerry douglas's name on all these records and there were some acoustic players out of the bluegrass world that i would notice uh on the tracks you know sometimes you might see pat flynn or russ berenberg um but primarily it was people like don potter and mark cast stevens and um bobby all and uh and so I kind of felt like, you know, there may be a little niche, niche for me as far as like more of a bluegrass-based kind of player to just be more active, not just occasionally showing up on records when a track called for it or Jerry Douglas knew somebody that, you know, that knew somebody else. It's like I wanted to be in the scene, be in the in the community of, of musicians right. on a regular Because a, a lot of guys that are known as bluegrass players, which essentially you are slash were mm -hmm. at that point, get pegged as like bluegrass guys yeah. and they don't necessarily do what you're talking about which is get into the pop slash country like the big yeah. budget stuff well i mean my challenges again from for myself from from early days was to really study uh what was on the radio and and work to recreate it and be able to be at least be inspired by it and not feel like everything i do has to have a d28 and a heavy pick uh <laughs> and and i would also couple that with a really early session experience down in South Carolina where I was asked to leave because I didn't have a thin enough pick, couldn't quite do that country strum thing. Really? Yeah. And so it was a lesson, you know, you kind of learn from your, your negative experiences. And that was, that was the lesson. Like, if I really want to do this, I've got to be able to offer, you know, this sort of palette of sounds yeah. and, and uh, characters. I mean, I've really seen session players as kind of character actors, like, okay, you need some kind of drugged out dead string guy on a street corner, <laughs> you know, yeah. strumming with his thumb versus, you know, some intricate, you know, uh, kind of thing here, whatever, you know, and I, and I enjoy kind of going down all those paths. And again, to the point of like the collaboration and feeling like I can offer that that's, a you know, uh, important to the track or the project right. or whatever. Do you feel like sometimes those sessions and like you end up playing like way below your pay grade, like as far as what you're able to contribute yeah, I see doesn't what, yeah. really get uh, get used? Well, this, yeah, well, I think what I would say about that is like Nashville session players, as a rule, are all extremely capable to run this whole gambit of what's possible musically. And most of us do really kind of enjoy and get off on the idea that we can 
you know, engage in different levels of what's necessary to, to make a certain song happen. So it's this real song service kind of thing. And it's because that's the that's the end goal. It doesn't matter that, yeah, I could I can do lots of other more complex things on the instrument, but that's that doesn't matter right now. And if I do get into the headspace of like, oh, this is beneath me, and again that's like rule number one of, of session players, leave that ego at the door. Yeah. You know, that's as Tom Bukovac puts it, you know, it's as a service industry. And it couldn't like be more correct. Cool. Yeah. And again, that's what I love about it is is the sweet spot of, yeah, I can bring a lot musically and I've got a lot of good guitars and I know how to mic them and I know I know what to go for. And uh, that's, you know, even though I can do more complex things, all that kind of lumped into like, here's what the session job is. And it's just, it can be just as complex to kind of figure out that puzzle. Again, back to kind of the character actor, like how believable can I make this sound for this singer or this or this song? And it's within all that, I think is it, it doesn't come down to like, oh, I, I could be doing this, but I have to do this. It's uh, I see equal footing for, you know, if it's a Vernon Bela Fleck complex, you know, uh, yeah, that's piece sort of, of a music, whole different beast, right? yeah, versus like, like just a one chord little simplistic Nashville thing. I mean, again, I, I love them equally. Uh-huh. That's cool, <laughs> and I love being part of 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 each. When you get a call, like if I am doing a session, it's usually for something that. We, me and the person that's calling me know exactly what I'm going to do. It's, mm-hmm. it's like a slide guitar thing or a pedal steel thing. It's like I, I, I know what they want, sort of. Mm-hmm. With you, when you are getting a call from somebody that maybe you haven't worked with before and you're being asked to play acoustic guitar, like that's a pretty broad, yeah. Yeah, right. defined totally. thing. Do you have a conversation at that point? Like, what exactly do you want? How do you decide what to bring? Or do you just bring everything and just sort of like jump in and... It can, it. Yeah, it can go different directions. If they're if the producer or whoever's calling has a specific idea, or maybe I played on something ten years ago. That's you know, as I've been doing this now for a long time, mm-hmm. people will say we like what you did on this Dirk Bentley or this Eric Church or whatever record, and we want that kind of whatever that sound is, and I'll know you know what that is. And so sometimes, yeah, there's like um, specific ideas of what kind of guitars need to be there yeah. or guitar, but generally, like especially on the the general Nashville call. That could go a thousand different directions uh, over a couple of days. It'll be the you know here's the trunks that get rolled in with all the guitars and the <clears throat> you know the twelve strings and, and nylon strings and mandolins and and how uh, big is the trunk? I don't mean physically. How many guitars are in the trunk? Oh, uh, I think what generally shows up on a session. I've got two. One's kind of about the size of a refrigerator, and another one's a little bit smaller. Uh, and the smaller one is six, and the big one it houses a lot of like utility stuff. You know, okay. the mandolins and the banjos. Probably all together, there's about 15 instruments. Okay. And then I may carry in two or three things. Your holy grails, guitar-wise, don't sit in those Not generally, cases, no. I mean, I've got some good stuff or... in there. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, the, like my main, like Martin, Martins, stay at home with me. Do they come to sessions generally? Mm-hmm. or they do? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because that's, you know... Again, like guitar choices that I've made over the years too, as a guy that kind of keeps a foot in both both worlds. You know, I don't look at a Martin D twenty eight from the thirties as just just a bluegrass guitar. It's actually really powerful. Like yeah. in a country track, you know, under the right kind of singer as a a real muscular kind of uh, ballad or something like that. You know, palette wise, if you're playing acoustic guitar on a session, how much can you vary, or how much do you think it can vary? Between, you know, like mic position, mm. the choice of pick, those kind of small details that, <laughs> I mean, for you, that's a, like a going from a light to a heavy pick. That's a huge yeah. difference. Well, 
to the average listener, it's it may not make a huge amount of difference, but for you, the the whole instrument would feel different. Yeah, you know, it's that's also part of the nerd out that I really enjoy, <laughs> of like, you know, it's pairing wine with the right dish, or or yeah. like, you know, if I'm a stage director, or designer in a play, like, what lighting does this scene need right now? What helps the again? What helps the overall vibe be more of that vibe? And so, yeah, it comes down to. I mean, uh, on a music stand in any given session, there's thirty to forty picks of d- varying. Okay. So you have like a thing that comes oh, yeah. out and it's, it's got like all EQ, the, yeah. you know, like a thinner pick with a certain kind of amber plastic plastic material has that front of the note little thwip that's you know a nylon pick doesn't have um, or a nylon based pick doesn't have, um, and I get into all that, you know, and different guitars. With different setups, different string gauges, um, different string ages. You know, yeah. like I've got this Gibson um, Southern Jumbo. That's set of strings have been on that maybe twelve years to fifteen really? now. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you obviously don't have really sweaty hands like I do. Not in the studio. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I I kill them on a bluegrass set, but but that's like that Gibson is great. You know, just for the right kind of song. And again, the, like the, the other version of that for me is maybe like a newer bourgeois that's got new strings on it that's bright and, and crispy yeah. sounding. And I think a listener would, would notice the difference. And you also think too, like, you know, if it is a piece of art where there's many things coming together to kind of create a singular thing, that, that at least what I'm doing is to help that singular thing feel like a more believable, stronger uh, entity, you know, if that means a real thin, pi- thin pick and kind of a Tom Petty sort of strum pattern or something like that on a 12 string, you know, that's that's helping. You know, again, it's palettes, it's colors, yeah. lighting. I see it all, all as that, and this, and just have developed various strategies and specific kind of pathways to to sound. In the same way, like you would have a pedal board you know, that's got this kind of delay versus this kind of delay or this kind of overdrive, why you would choose a rat over a, you know, a tube driver or something like that. You know, I I get into those paths. With picks. With picks. (laughs) Picks and strings and capos. I love that. That's so cool, though. Like, it it really is a huge game changer. So do you you discuss that, those options with the producer generally, or do you just kind of keep it to yourself and just be like, oh, I'm going to, take this and sometimes I will I mean there'll yeah. be I mean it's nuanced stuff I mean yeah. you m- mentioned mic placement and sometimes you know with an engineer it's just like two inches to the right please and that'll make a difference in how clear the low end becomes because I've gotten two inches away from the hole maybe of the acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and so sometimes with the producer I'll like do you like the way kind of the the forward leaning brightness of this guitar sits in the track versus maybe the more mellower you know rounded pick yeah. That's that's more of a glossy kind of less noticeable kind of thing. And, you know, some certain producers are, are geared into that. A lot of guys, again, are just going to trust me to make a good decision. Yeah. Um, what about layers? If you if you start in on a song that's, say, like a Tom Petty kind of thing, and you're laying down a straight six string and you're thinking, like, oh, a nice 12 would be good, mm-hmm. like, over on the other side, do you voice that opinion or do you leave it up to the producer or do you say like, Hey, I'm going to do this, but then I'm going to do this. Yeah. It, it varies, you know, depending yeah. on the producer. Sometimes I've gotten, again, I've worked enough with a lot of these folks to say, okay, let's do the thing where we, you know, do the true double and pan them hard yeah. or we want to capo another inversion up and then put, you know, layered 12 string strums, whole notes in the choruses, you know, there's like, yeah. okay, here's our, <laughs> here's our marching orders. And sometimes it develops as the track develops, you know, because that's, the, you know, within the, the Nashville way that's pretty improvisational. You know, you show up 
with a general idea about what the song could be. We're not 100% sure how it's going to get there. And so there are moments, you know, within the tracking process where, oh, yeah, this would actually, because of where the bridge is going now, or we made a, che- a key change happen. And so, therefore, I'm going to bring another guitar in to kind of lift everything. But I love that part of it, too. I mean, if I'm nerding out on picks and strings and guitars, I'm also, like, seeing the guitar part like an orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I really do enjoy creating, like, sections where, <clears throat> excuse me, where multiple instruments are kind of working with each other. And sometimes that'll also involve other musicians on the session to, uh, you know, to play parts with me. So, you know, sometimes it's really cool, like for certain hook licks that may be driven by a mandolin or acoustic guitar to have the piano just come in on the last three notes. And so, you know, that's also fun too, as far as the whole layering thing. And I do a lot where I'll sort of leave space for some kind of maybe uh, hook kind of part, you know, like you might think of more like an octave piano, just playing some kind of real spaced out line over the chorus. Like I'll create layers of like uh, a mandolin and a resonator that kind of creates this sort of dulcimery tone. And, and it's, especially when you, you know, put some of the effect kind of stuff on it, it can be a really cool sound, you know, and I really do like that. I love that whole thing of like combining two instruments to Make, that's sort of like a Beatles thing. Like it goes yeah. back to those days for mm-hmm. sure of like slowed down piano plus a 12 string guitar equals a mystery instrument. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, you know, back in the early days of working with Ricky Skaggs on those records, he learned a lot from Brian Ahern back in the Amy Lou Harris right. days. Great producer, you know, as far as stacking guitars. And then we have folks like Jeff Lynn, you know, with all those great records. And just there's, there's such a. Have you ever worked with him? No. Okay. Love to. Yeah. Great template out there. You get a lot of work in on a record of his. You're <laughs> yeah, doing like 36 tracks yeah. a song, man. Yeah, I've, there have been certain producers over the years where we'll kind of go that direction. It's never been like, you know, dozens of guitars, but but we'll you get, know maybe, get up there. Yeah, yeah, eight or ten doing different things. That whole idea is like very the opposite of bluegrass, which mm-hmm. you know the whole idea of stacking and like layering instruments that just doesn't exist in the bluegrass right. world. Influence wise for you. Did you hear, like, were you turned on to, like, you know, Zeppelin record? Like, things that had orchestrated guitar parts. Was yeah, that totally. Sort of, those, those are influences for you? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Led Zeppelin a little later in the career. But I'd have to say, too, like, even a Tony Rice record where Wyatt is there, too. Yeah. Doing some other part. like the, Church Street. Mm-hmm. Just beautiful, beautifully arranged, thoughtful guitar arrangements. Uh, one of my favorite Tony Rice projects is actually a compilation of all his Gordon Lightfoot covers and these cool. tunes like Shadows, yeah. Early Morning Rain, that, you know, where he and White are thinking about what each other are playing and they're complementary. And even back to the Doc and Merle sound, which yeah. is this like this, it's, I think, probably a little less thought about. But you can tell there's listening and, and again, sort of one thing that's happening as a result of two things. Yeah. And those were things that I recognized early on, too, not just in, you know, big production kind of records, but in my sort of wheelhouse of the guitar records that were really in, uh, informing me as a kid. Um, but, you know, again, like the Tom Petty stuff and, and even within the, the Nashville world, like to listen to a, a, a Don Williams record or a Judd's record, Don Potter on those Judd's records is just brilliant. Is he the, he's the acoustic mm-hmm. player? Oh, okay. Yeah, there's, there's guys, like the, some of those legendary guys that like just strummed rhythm acoustic guitar their entire career and they yeah. were so damn good at it. And... Yeah, it's underappreciated, like, right? Yeah, it's, it's like hard. Yeah, well, it's feel, it's it's harmonic kind of sensitivity, uh, team player kind of sensitivity as well. Especially like working 
for me, working with drummers has been kind of an exercise in, in really trying to agree with the rhythmic, with whatever the feel is, basically, which you kind of do in bluegrass, too, but it's just generally kind of a, a different sort of scene. For me, I, so I didn't grow up playing with a lot of drummers. So that's been part of my continuing lesson is just because a lot of people will, f- you know, put the hi-hat in different places or where yeah. the backbeat gets felt, you know, from somebody that's, you know, played drums their whole life is not where the bluegrass right. backbeat goes. <laughs> which is really forward, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it's that's a great lesson. And um, so the parts aren't that complex. Like you say, just a simple strum, but the way it lays in the track and the way it sort of keeps things moving at the right uh, the right kind of travel, <laughs> musical travel. Who are the of, Who are the guys? Like who are the Who was the A team of acoustic strumming guitar players? That like like that's all they did. Yeah the 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 guy that most Nashville people need to be aware of is uh, Ray Edenton. He it's probably crazy. like I've never heard of this guy. Yeah, Ray Edenton played on a, a, a good chunk of the stuff, and there's a lot of other guys too, like Fred Carter, of course Jimmy Caps. I know um, those guys. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm. Dropping names now. Uh, oh shoot! So what era are we talking? Are we talking sixties? <laughs> We're talking yeah, sixties through seventies, eighties, probably some fifties too. Okay. Um, there was a lot more artists that played on their records in the fifties. People right. like George Jones would probably just strum. Yeah. He would be his own guitar player. But as far as session guys, it just did that. Ray Edenton again is one of the the top crew. I wish I could. That's the guy. I can't think of his name now. That like played the Jolene part. Um, oh. And then, you know, a lot of those guys look to Chet Atkins, too, because if, if you're not doing the strum, then it was probably some kind of thumb-picking, kind of alternating, kind of Merle Travis-influenced part. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, that was sort of one or two things. Right. How much he, of that kind of stuff do you do? Um, minimal. I mean, I can. I can be believable with it. Uh, I bet. But it's, you know, I don't, <laughs> when I listen to guys like, Richard Smith and Tommy Emanuel, you know, I'm not a finger stylist. <laughs> right. Do you put a thumb pick on or do you just kind of fake it with a hybrid picking kind of thing? I will fake it with hybrid picking okay. or just use a thumb, you know, in the studio. Where it translates for me is in more of sort of like a sensitive guitar part that, well, I can show you. Yes. <laughs> um, if this is like the, uh, the dock, you know, or the chat, you know, Deep the, the thumb thing. Yeah. Where the... Where what works for me in like Nashville, especially a lot of modern stuff or Americana, where that, of course, I'd be in tune. <laughs> but that kind of thing, just just a sort of a singer songwriter kind of rolly part, you know. I, I've I've worked on a lot of that kind of stuff, or just found myself playing it a lot, and I really like it, you know. So finger style is not so much again like the the high bar of like a Tommy Emmanuel, or you know some of these just crazy wizards of of the instrument. Yeah. It's usually a little more kind of what would the singer, what's what's what feels realistic for this singer to be playing. And most of the records that I play on would be something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you get called on to do finger style stuff that much, or is it generally not that? It's pretty common that something like that will show up on a good number of the records that I play on okay. to some degree. If it's not like that sort of mellow finger thing, it would be that version with the pick that has a little more kind of brightness about it. Yeah. And it's also a little more maybe part of a bigger sound too, or like that little thing I was playing earlier is, would kind of define the whole part. When I use the pick and the fingers. It's louder, but I can also. uh, 
transition between more of an arpeggio to more of a strum kind of, kind right. of pattern because the pick's in my hand. Yeah. I wouldn't do that with the other the other approach. So that's, I mean, again, like three different potential sounds yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that are, again, depending on the song, like you, especially like in Nashville, you might have an intro and a first verse that are, you know, more to that sensitivity level with the arpeggio. And then I got to go to a strum by the time it goes to the chorus. And so being able to kind of navigate that instead of having to stop and punch in a new thing. Again, that's sort of the efficiency part of the session. What about mic selection? Because that to me makes a massive difference too. Like probably all, to me almost as much as, you know, old strings versus new strings yeah. or or pick versus fingers. Uh, mic selection is a huge thing. Do you get involved in that in a session? Or Sometimes. do you just kind of go with what's there? Again, there are certain producers that have, this is exactly what we want. Uh, Joey Moy that produces... Uh, Morgan Wallen and, and a lot of kind of newer stuff that's out there um, really likes this, you know, big fat Neumann in, M49. And uh, my favorite mic is either, well, favorites, uh, KM56 or a KM86. Mm -hmm. I really like those. And so there are certain engineers that I'll work with that they know that and they'll stick up an eight, a KM86. But again, it depends on the record. Sometimes, you know, it's really good to have something like that, like a hi-fi uh, kind of Neumann thing, but also have a SM57 beside it or a ribbon. Um, and depending on kind of the spatial kind of awareness, you know, there's the classic sort of Bill Vorndick style where there's a mic up by your right ear to kind of capture this kind of stereo imagery. Or, you know, Gary Pachosa will put two mics that kind of one above and one below that kind of come in and around the 14th or 16th fret. Oh, yeah. To kind of capture the guitar that way. Interesting. And into a stereo thing or into mm -hmm. a mono thing? Stereo. stereo. Thing. Hmm. And then there's other kind of strategies of stereo miking or distance miking. Usually on most of the records where, again, I'm going to be a sound in amongst a bunch of drums and, and it helps the mix to just have a little more of a, a clean, clear tone. It's There's a disadvantage in being too far away from the guitar, too much room. So generally, you know, I'm pretty close up there around the fretboard extension and uh, with some kind of mic. In the process of a modern country pop record, like a big budget, however many of those are left, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but in those kind of things that you're doing these days or in the last five, 10 years mm -hmm. or whatever, how much time are you spending on the record? And at some point, are you like the drummer just done before everybody else is? Or are you sticking around and adding things and coming up with other parts? Or are you just sort of like rhythm section done? Yeah. Thankfully, Nashville is still one of these towns where within about three hours, we've got a fairly finished product, you know, if, if it's that kind of budget to spend that kind of time on one track, which some people would say that's, you know, you need days. But again, when you get the right people with the right song, I feel like across the board, we kind of know what the marching orders are and we can get, get to that point. Um, and again, I think it serves the purpose of what is on the radio, uh, for better, for worse, coming out of Nashville. Um, meaning there's some formula there. There's some, okay, this worked on the last record, so we're going to do this again. Yep. You know, there's there's, it's the business of it that uh, kind of defines a lot of that stuff too, versus like, hey, we're just going to explore for eight hours, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, they're, they're, yeah, that those are fun records too, like a T-Bone record where it's like, we're just going to take whatever time it takes. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is yeah, I, I will be part of the main track. And again, what's good about Nashville is the fact that we're all on the floor, electric yeah. players, drummers, bass players, keyboardists, usually a live vocal. It may just be a scratch vocal, but the singer's there to help, you know, have input about... Tempo. Is that pretty much across the board? Is the yeah. artist always there on those bigger records? The majority of the time. Yeah. I'll, I'll give it a solid 95% of the time. Okay. If That's not, a... it's usually some kind of scheduling conflict where they just couldn't be there. But a lot of times, again, in the, in the modern era, 
they've written the song or they've got some kind of personal attachment to what needs to happen in there. And, it's, and they want to be there. Yeah. Right. And so... Um, That's heartening. Yeah, it is. It's a good thing. Uh, so, yeah, we can, you know, within a few hours kind of lay all the necessary parts. And, yeah, I mean, the drummer may be sitting around more than I am. But, you know, depending on what it is, sometimes there may be, you know, layers and layers of percussion stuff that need to go on or some programming or, some, you know, sometimes they'll say, bring a little small kit that we'll throw in the corner and mic it with, you know, just a little stereo thing and run it through a filter and create a loop. You know, they're doing some of that kind of stuff, too. Those are things that generally are, you know, if it's something like that, they're going to know pretty quickly. So two songs a day, three songs a day kind of vibe? Yeah, you know, like most of the things that I'm working on these days, there's, you know, thankfully a good budget to spend three hours on a tune. So if you, yeah, it's a kind of a civilized two session day where you're done at five, yeah. that's going to be two songs, sometimes right. more. We yeah. got in a thing last week with a, a, uh, a project where, you know, it was just not that the songs were particularly easy. It was just, it was a good day of like, here's the vibe, here's things happening quickly. And there wasn't a lot of thought, you know? And again, I think with country music too, it's, it's good to allow for that. Just because something happens quickly doesn't mean that something's wrong. Right. <laughs> it's okay. Maybe something's extremely right. Yeah. And it's right. just efficient. And hey, we did it. It's okay. Sometimes it works out that way. Sometimes you hit a home run on the first swing. <laughs> what are your favorite studios to work at um, in town here? I'm a fan of the rooms at Blackbird. Do Always. You, you do a lot of yeah. records there. Yeah. A lot in Blackbird D these days. Which one is D? That's the, the one with the big API board. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's sort of the big tracking room and a couple of booths on either side. Yeah. Um, Do you work at Sound Emporium much? I love the vibe at Sound Emporium. Always have. Uh, I've made a few of my own records there. And um, did you ever work at Southern Ground? Mm-hmm. I liked that place. Yeah, that was my favorite. Yeah, I love. I loved that. I enjoy Ocean Way. What's What's hard? <laughs> it's so big. It's so big. What's hard is that a lot of times I get put in this booth at Ocean Way. <laughs> And I'm trying not to run anybody under the bus here. And I've had conversations with the studio manager that there's, I mean, this is. Are you like 40 feet away from the action? Well, I can't, all I can see is just whoever's sitting on a couch. But the main thing is that the AC, like in the wintertime, it's freezing in there. In the summertime, it's burning up. Like I had to put a fan in there a couple of days ago oh, man. just to kind of cool it down when I wasn't working. And I, you know, I've got to either wear a, a long sleeve or put a towel on top of the guitar because my skin starts sticking because I start sweating <laughs> while I'm playing. And it's just, you know, it's not optimized work conditions like that when you're right. recording acoustic guitar and you hear, you know, with your skin coming <laughs> off the top because you're changing positions or something like that. So yeah. it's, you know, it's as much as I love that room and the piano sounds great and certainly the drums are wonderful in that room. It's a, a, a and I've worked a lot in there. It's, it's one of my favorite places, but it, it does come with some, I don't really understand why people would choose it, though, for like a country record. I mean, if if you're doing some orchestral stuff or yeah. some horns or something, maybe, but like drums, bass, a couple utility people, it just, I mean, that's a big room. Yeah, I mean, the piano is really good. A lot of the okay. like people like Gordon Moat that are really dialed into what pianos are doing what in, in town. That's one of their favorites. What is, is it a Steinway or something? No, I don't know. Even, maybe it's a Yamaha C7. It's just okay. a particularly good one. Mm. And I do think drums, for a lot of the kind of bombastic things that can happen on sort of, you know, more pop or rock-leaning country records, that's, it's you know, you're going to get that in that yeah. big, big cavernous room at Ocean Way that you don't get at Sound Emporium. So, you know, a lot of that goes into the choice. I mean, Blackbird D is, is a real serious sweet spot for everything. That's a good size room. I like that. Place. Yeah, it always sounds great. Feel the headphones feel great in there. 
Um, that's a big thing. People yeah. don't, don't realize that. That's a thing. Oh, totally. <laughs> it's, you know, they've got the whole, and most, most of the big studios like that have the, you know, you've got your own 16 channel mixer beside yeah. you. Yeah. Um, which, you know, sometimes it's fun to just not have that too. You know, just have, we're all listening to the same mix and there's something to be said for that as well. You mentioned T-Bone Burnett, which, what records have you done with him? Uh, we did a bunch of tracking at Sound Emporium. Um, when was that? Eight or 10 years ago for a project that actually never came out. There was a, some energies for a minute to try to make this Bill Monroe uh, oh. biopic. And we cut a ton of music really? to support that. And it, some of it may get used in some degree. Uh, at some, the, I don't know. Who was the artist? Like, well, was, it, was, it was a combination. It was a real uh, sort of smorgasbord of just of bluegrass people coming in and doing a bunch of Bill Monroe music. Um, it would be a great record just at, on its own. No doubt. Uh, and then I worked on a, a Diana Crawl record with him oh, yeah. up in New York. A couple other things. There's a few, you few weren't times. involved in the George and Tammy thing he was just doing no. here? Okay. No, I got a call for one of those things, but I couldn't do it. That's the, the tricky part of like, you know, people like that. You, know, you get a call and, man, I'd love to be, I need to be doing that. But, you know, there's something else going on. And just back to the balance of it, yeah. you know, it's kind of a good problem to have. To, the, the, the Diana thing was fun just for, I, I like getting out of Nashville too, you know, mm -hmm. when I've done things in L.A. or Austin or New York. How often does that happen? Rarely. Okay. I would love to do a little bit of that more um, just to kind of. Everybody listening. Yeah. <laughs> just to kind of get out of the, you know, the churn the of grind. the Nashville thing. Yeah. yeah. It's fun, you know, just being out of town. And I think, you know, what I like about it too is, you know, I go home every night here in Nashville, and it's not that I don't like doing that, but just when you're, you know, away from the house and you're a little kind more focused on the project. Yeah. yeah. So that was that, was that that Ragdoll record mm -hmm. of Diana's? And yeah. that's sort of a jazz thing. Yeah. Um, and so what was your role in that? Um, one of the things I did was kind of a Django-inspired sort uh, of intro, first verse kind of. You spent a few days up there doing that? It was mainly kind of one, one big day on that one. I think there were some other players. That's cool that he Mark, brought you in, though. Like, Mark Rebo, yeah. There's some pretty good players in New York. Yeah. It's nice to be uh, in, the, in the crew there. The, yeah, I'm, and again, like with a guy like T-Bone that I feel as a producer and a musician is really dialed into you know, to the vibe and, and who's doing what, and he definitely gets specific people for specific things. Totally. And, you know, to hang out and play with a guy like Jay Bellaros, too. Like, I, he doesn't usually play on most of the sessions I'm on in Nashville, right. so... Uh, you know, I enjoy all these different kind of characters and kind and of lots do of stuff with Jay. He's a oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really inspirational. Bluegrass wise, do you ever feel when you're doing all this other stuff detached from that zone at all? Like it's kind of a separate part of the brain in a way. A little bit, yeah. I mean, it's do you it's have a, to like get back in the shed a little bit and like totally? You do bone up on the on the chops a little yeah. bit before you go out with Bale Flack and stuff. Yeah, I mean there was. I mean, back even in the, the early versions of this where, you know, this is now back to the mid-90s when I first started playing with Ricky, I'd been doing primarily, you know, again, a lot of electric playing and fiddle playing for, you know, a few years before that and not doing any kind of of that sort of lead guitar, bluegrass, you know, heavy workloads stuff. And generally, though, you so know. So how, how, did, how did Ricky, like, how was he aware of you if you weren't even, like, really focused on acoustic Bluegrass well, it's stuff. it's an interesting sort of flow of time there where his newest band member was the bass player Mark Fain, who joined the band in April of 95. And the guy that I replaced left in late June, early July of 95. So Mark was new to the band, and I'd just done some sessions with Mark over the years. Thank you. And so 
as you know, the music business, it's, you know, it's much about who you know than what you know. And so it was just a timing thing of this guy left, Mark was new to the band and said, hey, I know this, this kid, Brian. And, you know, within a week or so, I was in the band. And that was also, as far as Ricky's timeline, when he was transitioning more to guitar. This show is brought to you by the good folks at Isotope, who make incredible plug-in software for any music or dialogue recording situation. Among other things, they make a very unique suite of software called RX, which you can use to surgically repair almost any kind of issue in a recording. Whether it's removing electrical hum, unwanted noise, vocal plosives, or almost anything you can throw at it. I use Isotope RX on every mix in one way or another, and I love that I can get in there on guitar tracks that I'm doing and running through my crazy old tube amps and get rid of the hum and noise without affecting the actual tone of the guitar. You can buy their plugins outright or get a subscription to keep up to date on all their latest versions. Right now, they're offering listeners a 10% discount on any of their plugins when you use the code SOULPOD10 at checkout. So head on over to isotope.com slash soulpod, and you'll see the links right there to get the discount or an extended 30-day trial of their subscription service of Music Production Suite Pro. We're also brought to you this season by Black Mountain Picks. These are unique spring-loaded thumb picks that are super comfortable and adaptable. I've been using them for a couple years now, and I absolutely love them. They come in medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and with regular or extra-tight spring tension. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. Also thanks to Ear Trumpet Labs, a workshop in Portland, Oregon, hand-building amazing-sounding microphones. These large diaphragm condensers combine state-of-the-art sound with eye-catching designs and the feedback control to excel live as well as in the studio. I am using their Edwina myself right now on this podcast. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com. And finally, the Hen House Hang. It's a four-day immersive recording experience right here with me at the Hen House Studio in East Nashville on September 19 to 22, 2022. Join us for a musical learning experience like no other. We'll put you up in a groovy hotel, feed you some glorious food, show you the ropes of recording roots and Americana music by bringing you in on a real session with real musicians working on real songs from the ground up. You can get all the info on that at stevedawson.ca. Just follow the links on the front page to the Hen House Hang. All right, then, let's get back to the show. That was a, I remember when that record came out. Yeah. That was, I, that totally like blew people's minds, mine yeah. included. It was like a heavy thing that was unexpected. The Bluegrass and, Rules record. Yeah. Yeah. But when I joined the band, before I became like the guitar player in the Bluegrass band, I was the utility guy. Again, oh. like it's where all that stuff that I've been doing to replace David Johnson. So you were off. playing some fiddle and I was playing twin and... fiddles with Bobby Hicks and playing wow. banjo, playing the banjo part on Country Boy, which is nuts. <laughs> wow. Uh, and some strumming and some singing. And, and, you know, there was a telly player there that left also, Keith Sewell, great musician. And uh, we were doing these sort of hybrid shows, half country, half bluegrass. Oh, so he wasn't fully committed to yeah. the bluegrass. There was a transition. Yet. Okay. He was aiming that way. And so it just, I was, it was like this wave that was building and crashing. And I, I, was, I was a surfer and just happened to catch all this at the right time. You know, I got into it as a fiddle player, utility guy, and, and ended up there as a, you know, lead guitar player in a bluegrass band. And so in the, in the midst of that, again, Keith left when we were doing some of these country shows. And I started playing the, the telly, telly parts in all the country, or what was the part, country part of the show. And that worked out to not have, you know, kind of a competition between two guitar players of who would be the lead guy in the, in the acoustic stuff. So anyway, all that to say, that was, uh, that's how I got into the whole Skaggs thing. Was it called Kentucky Thunder then? Or yeah. was that like the mark in the sand where he's like, going to bluegrass? He had a, a record, a country record called Kentucky Thunder. 
some years before. And I think the band just kind of organically kind oh, okay. of morphed into that kind of name. Because Skaggs bands have always kind of garnered some attention way back in the country days, like in the, when the CMA used to give awards for like the band of the year and his band yeah. was, you know, always a perennial favorite there. Yeah, yeah, I bet. And so, uh, so yeah, it kind of transitioned to more, now I'm out playing lead bluegrass all the time. So how did that sit with you? Like, were you, you were into it, obviously, like it was a thing that you were keen to do? Cause yeah. That took you out of the studios and sort of diverted your career at that point, right? Yeah, well, it's weird. I used to, you know, have these little conversations with myself, you know, when I was first in Nashville of like, I know this is what I want to do and I don't want to travel. But, you know, if somebody like Ricky Skaggs or Vince Gill ever calls, <laughs> well, I'll have to rethink this. And, okay, here we are rethinking yeah. it. And that's really got, that got me on this sort of track of like, can I do both, you know? And I also right. knew like, there's always been a vibe. It's a whole lot less, thankfully today, but a vibe amongst Nashville Session players, the community that, you know, where you don't travel. And if you do right. travel, it's almost like you're kind of out of the game, out of the game. Yep. If you're not available, if you're not here all the time, then you're not going to get in. That's the way in is to be here right. and only here. And and neither the, the two shall Because you get, that, you get a, that phone call only a few times yeah. where it's like, I can't do it. I'm on the road. Mm -hmm. And you're out, of the, yep. you're out of the Rolodex. Yeah. So I kind of challenge, again, I sort of recognize this challenge to sort of figure out there's got to be some way to do both. And uh, but maybe I could I, like to me that gig put you in people's brains. Like yeah. you're that's the reason that people well, got to start to know who you were. For yeah, sure, there was a payoff right? of that, you know, and and directly too back into the session scene here where we did a uh, a performance in Nashville. There there used to be this thing called the uh, the NAMI Awards, like a Grammy kind of just just the Nashville music community. And the Skaggs band played again. This we're talking ninety seven or eight. Uh, and we got up there and ripped through something. And I got a call literally the next day from Paul Worley, the yep. Dixie Chicks producer, who they were all out there watching. They're like, let's get this guy to play on some of our tunes. And so that was where, again, kind of the, the two had a, a lovely little crossing. And, uh, yeah, it was a high-profile situation. But still, like if you're, you know, day-to-day -day kind of Nashville churn kind of producer or player, you know, uh, in the player community, they're not quite as plugged in uh, uh, as that. Uh, to that. Um, I think the fact that there wasn't an internet back then too was probably, you know, part of it. Um, there wasn't like YouTube videos to start going around and sharing. It was all word of mouth. But yeah, the Skaggs thing was a way for me to get back into playing bluegrass uh, more because it kind of connected me back to my roots in a good way and got me back into that scene. And really also to a, uh, a point of just me being a, uh, a player, a craftsman, uh, the craft of that kind of guitar playing, you know, because it was really fast. And this is in the era before pickups and in-ear monitors, too. I mean, it was just all stage volume and, and me how, having... How to... do you reckon with that? Like, how do you <laughs> how do you get... Because I know, you know, like, I, I play guitar, too, but I'm not a flat picker, per se. But, like, that's a hard thing to yeah. to compete volume-wise with yeah. a fiddle and a mandolin and a banjo. Yeah, I mean, I, I drew on some of the, and still do, kind of the the fact that I've been doing this since I was six or eight years old, and there was just some fundamental mechanics in place that... Can you tell me a bit about those fundamental mechanics? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, a lot of... Because I got to say, when we, when I met you at Tim O'Brien's place, I was sitting... We were in a circle, and I was sitting, like, three or four people away from you. I was playing a national, uh -huh. so I didn't have a volume issue. But... Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember hearing you 
play, like for the first time up close in person, I was just like, holy shit. Like there was so much volume coming out of your acoustic guitar, way more than anybody else in that room. I'm sure partly it's like the guitar is great, but 90% of it is the way that you're able to project through the instrument, which is hard. We could get into hours of kind of some theories about human (laughs) mechanics and posture and but the fundamental thing, like a lot of athletes will uh, get into as well, there's a way to kind of, I mean, again, I, I think it boils down to understanding how to use your body, listening to your body, listening to tension. Uh, and you challenge yourself with kind of recognizing the sweet spot of what you're forcing and what you're allowing. A lot of what I feel like is available to me to help me project is not about trying to play loud, but just noticing what happens when I am in a little more of a state of flexibility and openness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're talking like golfers will talk have about Have you this. gone through a period of fighting it? Where well, that like... was part of the whole Skaggs experience for me was, was a lot of fighting and a lot of tension, a lot of pain and a lot of like scary situations. I remember one show of just really playing hard and the body just shut down. Like I couldn't make my hand move anymore. Oh and so it really opened up like there's, again, there's gotta be a better way. So I learned a lot about, Again, it's the inner game is it's really based kind of an Eastern thought of this, you know, again, kind of listening to yourself, breathing, mindfulness as it as it applies to like a motor skill or, or the, the human body in action, doing something. You know, it does get kind of head trippy uh, mm-hmm. into that kind of stuff. But I, I really it's 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 sort of disciplines of thought, if you will, too. But, you know, like the point on, on the guitar when I am using, you can't see this, but when I'm using more from my elbow down to the tips of the fingers, that's akin to like if I'm throwing you a ball with more of my whole arm versus just the wrist and hand. Most players, acoustic players that I see, especially folks that are coming from the electric world, will kind of plant on the bridge and just and, and really drive. Most of the motion is limited to the hand and wrist. <laughs> not a bad sound. Should have tuned. But like, just listen to one note. That versus this. Whoa. And again, if I do just dig in a slight bit more, even though this, I mean, this is a triple 018 small body guitar. Almost like your your like a high pass filter. Yeah. When I, when I resu- uh, reduce down to wrist and hand, it's thinner than. And that's yeah. just your feeling motion kind of in the forearm. Yeah, I'm, I'm lifting the wrist off the bridge and using more of the full. I've never even thought about that. That's crazy. And so, like, if I were to throw a ball with the wrist and hand, it's going to be limited on how far I can throw that. But using more of my body. Again, if you're throwing, you know, down even down to your hips and stuff like that, but just limited to what's possible in a guitar. It's using more of the the maximum amount that, that's available to me to help produce a sound. Was like, that a revelation when you figured that out, or were you aware of that the whole time? When I first started, kind of trying to examine my own fight with tension, yeah, those were that's when I recognized that for me. And again, when I'm now teaching this kind of stuff, I recognize that after again watching a lot of players kind of fight to be heard. And I know, okay, this is what you're doing. And if, and if we can change this experience and you, you notice this bigger sound as a result of more of your wrist or more of your uh, forearm working with your wrist and hand, there's, a, there's an inherent efficiency there that's actually more sustainable too. When you ask smaller muscles to do more of the work, that's less sustainable, more tension. 
Um, so it, it come, for me, it comes down to a lot of that kind of understanding of what I'm putting into this thing to help optimize the guitar. And, and again, the guitar does help like in a bluegrass situation. I mean, this is not a D28 or a dreadnought size body, but it does help every guitar. In- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Some, some shape or fashion. So in those Skaggs, those that like late ni- mid to late 90s mm-hmm. Skaggs tours, you're all playing into one mic or were you separately mic'd? It's all separate mics, separate monitors. Okay. And you're playing from a floor monitor. You weren't on in-ears or anything no. like that. Wow, that's hard hard, yeah. hard to get anything back from those that's like accurate or sounds good, right? Yeah, it was tough. Um, and it also led to other experiences, again, like learning how to get out of my own way and allow my body to do what it can do versus feeling like I tried to, or feel like I'm trying to force something to happen. That's still kind of a continual battle of, for a lot of bluegrassers is playing too hard. Yeah. Um, but when it was, when it's right, again, it's a lot of like what athletes talk about being in the zone where you're getting kind of this maximum effect based on a minimal perceived amount of kind of energy and input to the instrument. And all you can really do is learn how to set the stage for that. That's another way to sum up a lot of my journey with this is I can't, I can't expect that to happen, but I can learn more about me, my tension, my experience, my fears and, and anxieties as it plays into, you know, choices on the instrument but when i can get out of the way of a lot of that stuff and be healthy and and settled and breathe you know it it does create the environment for more of that stuff to happen has the technology change helped like with in-ear do you use in-ears sometimes yeah, now the, and, with the bail fleck touring certainly yeah. that's it's all in ears does Still, that does that ease some of that issue of like of it, having yeah. to project so much yeah I, I still tend to play too hard on some of the real you know rip roaring kinds of things yeah uh but it's key mics individually easier. obviously yeah. right like that's a big band out there mm-hmm. uh that's a lot of yeah. that's a lot of noise it does help um as far as not digging in too much you know you're not i'm not fighting for it as much yeah. i'll tend to just fall into the trap of it because it's fun yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's fun to kind of like go hard sometimes but uh Tell me, tell me a little bit about the Bluegrass Heart Project. Like when he calls you and says, hey, I'm doing this thing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if it just came out of the blue or if you kind of knew it was coming. Um, is it the kind of thing where you, like those are, I mean, I can't imagine how you work out your arrangement or what to do in those tunes. Like how much work do you put in prior to the session for a thing like that where it's you, complicated? Yeah. Well, guys like Bela and when I've recorded with Thiele and people like this, yeah, there's Versus like most of the Nashville sessions that I go in and have no clue. Here's a chart and let's go. Yeah. You know, there will be some some demos and some maybe some rehearsals. 
uh, with Bela, there's, you know, definitely rehearsing before you show up for the session. Yeah. There's also, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've done a gig, Thankfully. at least one gig with him annually for 20 years now. Okay. And a lot of times he'll workshop some of his new materials and a lot of the songs that, that at least that I played on, on this record were tunes that we played four or five years ago in Telluride. Okay. Or even back when I had. Oh, so a, he's been he's been nursing this stuff for a while. Yeah, he's always okay. writing, and again, yeah. this is the first kind of collective uh, body of of kind of bluegrass based music uh, since 1999. Right. You know, so uh, planet. Yeah. Were you on that? I wasn't on it, but I did the tour. That was the one where oh, okay. that was my first kind okay. of entry into his world, specifically of, of you know where Tony Tony Rice didn't do the tour, and so yeah. I did. Um, but anyway, the point, yeah, so show up at his house for a few rehearsals and got familiar with, with what the parts are and what the intent for the tune. Sometimes there's some demos. Um, but yeah, you, you go to the session basically prepared. And what, what does that look like for you? Like how much time do you need to spend on a set of Bella Fleck tunes? Uh, it depends, you know. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good at like, uh, at, you know, within the session skill set for that kind of work with Bela of like making a chart for me that's very readable and understandable and it's a roadmap. I don't have to go in and like memorize all this stuff. I can, I can use the chart as a way to. But, you, but on stage, you're not reading. No. Okay. No. So that, at that point you're memorized. Yeah, for the okay. session I'm, I'm reading and then we'll, then we'll work to move to this performance state, which now that's, you know, for what we're doing out there, it's, you know, two and a half hours of music that we started working on last year. Hours. Yeah. And, um, you know, the thing about the Bela Fleck level of stuff that I've recognized from day one, you know, even, you know, studying his music from 25, 30 years ago is it's, it is complex. Uh, but one of the things for me, at least that make this gig fun and playing this music, what it is, it is very musical at the end of the day. Totally. It is extremely yeah. complex because that's the way he thinks about things. Um, but there's a melody there. There's usually some kind of, it's not just complexity for complexity's sake. How much, how much is a record like Drive, like a blueprint for you, where Tony sort of laid out how to deal with Bela Fleck's music in that context? Like, I'm sure that was something Totally. That... Well, and Bela will be the first to say, too, like the way Tony Rice's rhythm playing makes his pocket feel. And he will say, too, like those records, Drive, Acoustic Planet stuff, you know, he's writing with those guys in mind, too. He can hear Sam Bush's mandolin chop and what it's supposed to do in this particular section or what Tony might do you know, in an intro of, of some tune or another that's kind of spacey and weird, and but also still very rooted and rhythmic at the same time. And, are, there, are there a few hallmarks of Tony's rhythm playing that have really stuck with you? Like, as far, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming that he's totally. a huge influence on you. Yeah, I mean, one of the main things, Tony would, you know, where if in bluegrass, it's almost in tune. <laughs> Most people in bluegrass are boom chucking like that. Most people in bluegrass are just, you know, boom chuck, bass note strum. Yeah. Tony's thing is. really doing a lot of justice but that instead of a boom chuck boom chuck it's boom chuck sweeping through yeah. 
that in no way sounds like Tony Rice, but that's sort of the functional <laughs> uh, stuff that's going on. And again, a lot of that kind of over in, or not over, but anticipating like a new chord change. <laughs> is basically the school of Clarence White too if you go listen right. and study a lot of Clarence White rhythm playing really syncopated like that yeah and so Tony's sort of amalgamation of, of Clarence Jimmy Martin as far as just from an energy standpoint and, and from all the days that he played with JD Crow to just have that kind of bluegrassy fiery drive you get this beautiful kind of blend and marriage of like this intricacy with that kind of bluegrass power too mm -hmm. you know like like a really serious heavy chops drummer like you know, uh, Steve Gadd or Dave Weckl or Benny Caliuta or something like that. They can, yeah. you know, really, you know, subtle within the subdivisions, but all kind of aiming for this like serious, noticeable groove and pocket and energy. So in his tunes, not Tony's, but in Bela's tunes, when the harmonic content starts getting more out there, is he like, are those chords and stuff notated in a, in chart form or is it all just kind of like, you have to interpret it. Yeah, there's a lot of interpreting. Okay. You know, and there's also some, if there's patterns, you know, like one of the beautiful things about this sort of standard bluegrass G is there's no thirds. Yeah. There's nothing to kind of get in the way if I'm right. playing or if I make it more of a ninth kind of a thing. You know, that, that would be kind of directly related to where I hear a melody going. Um, so there's, you know, kind of like a jazz player, hopefully will listen to... Uh, the top line, the melody line, and you know this this version of this chord kind of works. And Tony was real fond of like minor seven, yeah, or like the eleven. And ninths and things like that. So there's a bit of a kind of a vocabulary, a chordal vocabulary that that informs a lot of that the way that we still play a lot of that music. Again, like to your point, that's you can hear on drive. It doesn't get too kind of thick, you know, like jazz, right? You know that kind of stuff. There's usually not room for that kind of thing, uh, and and it's funny, you know, like a lot of times the more complex that maybe his stuff will get, the, meaning Bela's rolls or something like that, it will oftentimes just mean Require. I need to right. just play a power chord, and that actually supports it better than mm -hmm. trying to say, oh, you've got this flat thirteen and and or this alternate whatever. Yeah, because you don't need to be yeah, I don't need to playing be that. that note. What yeah. he needs is is a is a downbeat and a feel. Yeah. Does he discuss your parts with with you as the sessions going down very yeah, much? Yeah, generally. I mean, as a producer, he's also really good at kind of, you know, communicating what he needs and finding that balance of like, okay, I've got yeah. a room full of people that know what to do on their instrument, but I also know what I need to this song to be. So it's you know, he's well aware. We were talking about that just a couple of days ago, just like you, you know. You can't over. You can't tell somebody what to play too much. You know, right. you try to guide and say, "Here's the vision for this," and I think this voicing will serve this, you know, purpose better. But th at the end of the day, there's uh, the the personality behind it and all that kind of stuff. He really, yeah. I think, he does a good job of allowing it to be what it needs to be. Did you ever meet Doc Watson? Oh yeah. Did you have some good hangs with that guy? Yes. Yeah, I was fortunate to be around Doc. So he he was he he lived in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Was he? I don't know if he was in Boone or something like that. Or where, where yeah. did he live? Boone, uh, specifically Deep Gap, which is okay. just just outside Boone. So how far is that from where you grew up? Was, uh, like, was as, he a presence in Asheville? Not Asheville so much. I mean, as the crow flies, Asheville to Boone, 
is maybe an hour and 45 minutes, right. but it's a windy, you know, way to get up there. Um, so, I mean, geographically, as far as our home bases, we didn't really cross paths that much. And it was really only when I started being more out into the uh, sort of professional realm that I really start getting to know him and hanging. As a kid, I would go see him. He would come to these little festivals uh, throughout the state or little shows here and there. Right. Yeah. And so, and I had, you know, every record and he, he is sort of the primary kind of foundation of my oh, really? playing okay. as far as flat picking and, uh, you know, fiddle tune interpretation and that kind of thing. Once, yeah, once I was out with Ricky and, and, uh, and then kind of stayed out there in the acoustic scene, was around him a lot more either at Merle Fest or, you know, just crossing paths on the road. He and I have a, a mutual friend over there in North Carolina that would put on a, a benefit show every year. This is kind of back 10 or 15 years ago. And I would see him there quite a bit. And then I got to record with him, you know. Um, oh, where? For, what was that? I had a I have a duet record called Not Too Far From The Tree. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's all these folks, you know, heroes, Tony Rice, Jerry Douglas, Earl Scruggs is on it, my dad, <laughs> David Greer. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, Doc is kind of like the kingpin of this. Um, the only way we could work it out was I brought some uh, mobile gear to Lyons, Colorado, Okay. Uh, or Longmont, actually. The yeah. festival's in Lyons, where our hotel was in Longmont, and we recorded a duet in a hotel room of Whiskey Before Breakfast, and we did a few other tunes as well. Uh, but that's the one that ended up on that record, uh, just a rendering of a, of a fiddle tune yeah. with Doc. And, oh, man, that must have been a rush, eh? Yeah, it was great, and we and it won a Grammy. It won a, a country instrumental back when they had that category. Yeah. And I called him to talk about it, and he says, we fooled him again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, that's so cool! Did did you ha like? How did the arrangement come together for that? What was the process? Did you just show up and kind of trade the tune a bit? And yeah, I mean, yeah. there again, there's sort of a template, at least in the guitar duet world, where somebody will kick it. You know, um, in this case, you know, it's Doc Watson. So please, you know, lead us off, mm -hmm. sir. <laughs> and you just trade it back and forth three or four times, and then maybe something happens. I think in this, I play a little bit of harm harmony stuff, you know, harmony lines around one of the parts. You know, fiddle tunes are so squared, two A's, two B's, and yeah, right. it's just a pass around. And maybe there's, like I say, some kind of slight arrangement idea if it's a record. A lot of times if we're doing something like, like this live, you know, it might be a little trade thing or whatever, but you generally kind of feel like this arc happen and then you're done. Right. Kind of like a jazz head where everybody kind of takes their turn with it and, and then you move on. It's pretty, it's simplistic like that. Yeah. Yeah. Your solo playing is great, but there's not a lot of stuff out there that I'm aware of. But there's that, you do an Arkansas Traveler, speaking of fiddle mm -hmm. tunes, on that record from five, six years ago. Yeah. That was the More I Learn record. More I, I Learn. Yeah. Um, that's actually the most recent. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. Um, when you approach doing a solo fiddle tune like that, are you drawing from, you know, all those experiences playing with Doc and and hearing his records and totally. how he approached playing solo fiddle tunes and stuff like that. Yeah, and and I also kind of branch out into other, like, for, especially for that specific tune. I mean... That's a great arrangement. Oh, that, thanks. Yeah. Uh, Norman Blake was the first guy to, for that specific tune, kind of present a solo version. And it's always, you know, kind of daunting for such an ensemble form of music, especially with a guitar being totally. kind of... You know, when the, when the rhythm guitar goes away in a, in a band, you know, like there's this big hole left. So just to play solo flat picking is is kind of a little bit of an art in and of itself of yeah. how you still kind of uh, navigate through to help communicate chord changes and things like that and, and yeah. not just be kind of 
like one finger on a piano, one note at a time kind of sound. So that was, you know, a goal with that kind of stuff is to kind of keep this, you know, chordal stuff real full. And again, that's one of the things that Norman was always really good at. Is there an example of that? Like maybe in the context even of that Well, like the melody is... uh, turn into when the chorus so you know again involving chord uh tones and and again i'm start improvising and, you know, investigate some other variations to just sort of keep the melody there, but not necessarily so... Uh, rigid. Kind of rigid, yeah. yeah. So, and that was also another, uh, one of my favorite John Hardford statements is, you know, you always encourage people to play with the music. I really like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, don't find yourself, you don't, you don't have to stay within these, in the, in the lane. Right. Um, it can be real playful within that. He was, you know. he was good at that. Did he totally. get a chance to play with him? A little bit, yeah. He did. He got. He started getting sicker about the time I was. Yeah. I was uh, coming up. I had a weird moment with him backstage at Merle Fest one year. Uh, one of the first times I'd played there with Ricky, and uh, again, that's a big festival for me because it's right sort of in North Carolina, and I grew you up play there every of, year. Uh, been there a lot, yeah. and this was like early on in this in this experience. And here comes John Hartford passing me in the hallway backstage, and he says, "Hello, Brian," you know, in this Hartford voice, <laughs> and it just freaked me out that he knew my name in the first place. And because I'm on was the way out to the stage, was he aware of you through the Gags yeah, band? Yeah, okay, I think so. And yeah. then he just said, "I like your guitar playing," and I was so flustered because in my brain I'm thinking, <laughs> "How can I?" As I'm walk trying to go to the, you know, they're introducing the band in a matter of seconds, probably. How do I tell John Hartford, you know, what he's meant to yeah, me in man. the world and, you know, in this passing moment and all that came out when he says, I like your guitar playing. I looked at him, I said, me too. <laughs> kind of like, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your wife says, you know, anything and you, you know, love you too or whatever, and it's not the right kind of answer. Yeah. That's what came out was this stupid Oh, my slip. God. <laughs> uh, you probably remembered it forever yeah. and he's yeah. long forgotten that you yeah. said I'll never such a crazy thing. But that's, you know, again, like to the to the fiddle tune, my interpretation, I, I really do like the whole idea of from the solo guitar point, how, how yeah. the thing can kind of ebb and flow based on other chordal stuff. Kind of, and again, sort of thinking like a jazz player, chord melodies within the flow of fiddle tunes to keep it playful. So that guitar is a triple O. Yeah, this is a brand new instrument, actually. It looks, what? It looks 80 years old. It's made by the fine folks over in uh, Hillsboro, North Carolina at pre-war guitars. Oh, this is a pre-war. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, I mean, I know we're on a podcast here, but it's, <laughs> this looks like a beaten up 40s Martin. Yeah. And it's built on all those specs, too. And it's it's really great. I haven't played it a ton. How did they do such a good relicking job on it? That's crazy. I don't know. I mean, that's... The reason I like it is not so much that it looks funky and, and old, but it really they've kind of cracked the code with a lot of the just the vintage feel, the really? response, and the way this thing kind of you know notes explode out of it, and the volume that it has. It's it's, it's very it's amazing sounding and alive sounding. Yeah, you know I, I've. So they do like all the gamut of like dreadnoughts and triple O's and yeah, they do that. like a round shoulder Gibson style and, a, and certainly a Martin D twenty eight and these smaller bodies, 
Um, is that where you're touring with? No. Uh, this happened to be close to the door on the okay. way out uh, <laughs> today. And, and again, I love playing it. I hadn't played it in a while, so I thought I'll take it here and see what happens. So um, what do you tour with? Uh, it's a 1936 D28. You, you do take that yeah. out? Yeah. Does that make you nervous? No. Okay. No. That's, you know... It's a there, workhorse. Yeah, there's nothing that sounds like that guitar. Yeah. And it's not in mint condition either. I think, you know, to be clear, if it were some kind of collector's piece, I probably wouldn't take it out. But it, it looks kind of like this one. Yeah. <laughs> to have a pickup in it. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. Do you have a lot of the vintage Martins? I have the 36 D28. I have a 35 D18. Um, another 1935 single 018. How does the 28 and the 18 differ in your mind for... Well, in these particular instruments, the the eighteen's got a little more of like, to me what mahogany, good mahogany guitars have this kind of mid rangey but very throaty kind of uh, kind of sound, like a real direct. A lot of people say it's bright, but I don't think it's brighter as much as it is like this almost like brass, mm -hmm. you know, like a trumpet. You know, just it really can cut through a lot of things. It's a good lead guitar. Brazilian rosewood D28s. A lot of times, their, their their frequency range has a broader kind of span. You'll notice a little more low end. My particular 36 to me is voiced a little more mid rangey, like a like a D18. I've always found myself hmm. intrigued by guitars that kind of do. You know, if it's a mahogany guitar that has rosewood characteristics, or rosewood guitar that have some of that mahogany characteristics, because rosewood guitars can get kind of kind of thick and thuddy sounding pretty okay. quickly too. Yeah, and some mahogany guitars can get just kind of thin sounding. Do you have a favorite? Uh, I mean, for the bluegrass sound, meaning it's like the twenty-eight. Yeah, when you need to do that, like this again from the rice influenced, yeah, sort of heavy, punchy rhythm. Um, you know, like there's nothing that sounds quite like a D twenty-eight, a thirties D twenty-eight, played that way is the thing. Right. Um, Does yours have a history that you're aware of? I would love to know it. I mean, it's again totally beat up, and there's parts of the back of the of the neck that are literally worn in, like divots, and they're not capo divots. It's oh, like wow. somebody's hand that just played the thing forever, wow. and yeah. the wood the back of the wood is soft enough. And it's where did you find it? Uh, I was at Gruen's. Okay. Uh, I guess I'm going on about six years with this thing now. It had had a new uh, bridge plate and bridge, and it, and it was I could tell that the guitar had some kind of reopening up to do. It's a little little closed, closed sounding, even as good as it was. And it's, it's improved since I've played it. Mm. I've been kind of committed to it. So that's a recent guitar, though. For me, for yeah. I've tried to be as monogamous as I can with this one. <laughs> I usually get, get one for about a couple of years and I move on. Oh, really? So that's yeah. been a pattern. You've I'm, I'm way unfaithful. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you're going to stick with this one for a while. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's garnered my uh, my affection. <laughs> and you've got a pickup point. in that one? Yeah. Okay. Well, again. So, so has pickup technology improved to the point where you're ha happy with the live sound you can get? I'm happy uh, with what's in there. Yeah, it's, it's a Bags it? Lyric and a yeah. Joe Mills, Mike. Are you familiar with those things? No. They're kind of, there was a guy here in Nashville named Joe Mills that found some old, I think a Japanese kind of like little lapel mic kind of parts, small kind of things. But he... For a lot of years, that's a lot of records that you hear, like in the 70s and 80s, where acoustic guitars were recorded with this little drop-in mic, yeah. Joe Mills mic. But oh, that's that. Okay, Joe Glazer that. wired this thing in with the bags to create this kind of uh, dual system. So where does the mic sit? The mic kind of, uh, it clamps to this back brace and kind of sits just inside the hole. Oh, so you can of, take it out. Yeah, it's like a, it's I can just take the whole, the, whole, okay. the whole thing out. Yeah. Uh, but the point is, is that it's... A really great mic, and the bags thing does what I need it to do. I mean, it still sounds like a pickup. Yeah. Um, and then that gets, uh, that's one line that gets separated at a Grace Felix preamp 
okay. on the floor and then we're yeah. done. Yeah. It's uh, the goal there, kind of like with recording gear. You like, blend it yourself yeah. to your taste. You mm -hmm. send the sound guy one signal. Yeah. That's a blend. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, the fact that the Grace stuff is just so high quality. It's just, you know, class yeah, A. That stuff is crazy. Punchy, clean yeah. electronics. I think, you know. Does everyone in that in Bella's band have a Grace? <laughs> they probably do, right? We all do. I mean, this again, <laughs> our, that ba Bela gig is totally acoustic. There's no pickups except for the bass. Oh. The bass has a direct line. Okay. He's using a Felix. <laughs> so you don't plug in at all for that no. gig? Oh, wow. Okay. I, you know, to clarify, actually, Bela does one song on this cello banjo that's with nylon strings and really quiet, and he runs it through his Felix. Okay. So there are two. So you don't bring a you don't bring a thing at all. No. You're just playing straight into a mic. Yeah, cool. Again, with in ears, you can get away with it. If we were yeah. not on ears, we'd probably use pickups. So there are two felices on stage. <laughs> is that correct? I think so. <laughs> that work. So the Bela thing is a current tour, right? Like that's coming up. Uh, we've been out. Uh, we did the first official run last fall. Yeah, and kind of gone in different pockets of, you know, two to three week runs up to now right now i'm kind of in the middle of a kind of a shortened run we've got four more gigs um in this little batch and then i'm out for a little while then there's just some kind of weekend one-off kind of stuff happening does somebody else feel if you can't do stuff do you yeah well like it, you should clarify you know like this particular bluegrass heart project involves a lot of different people right you know, like i'm one of four there's guitar Molly players and yeah billy strings and cody kilby okay and cody's done some of the gigs there's a, a guitar player that's going out later uh, in a few weeks from here in September will be Sean Richardson, who tours with Sierra Holt. Oh, okay. Who's done some of the gigs, too, with Bela. But when you go out on tour, there's not more than one guitar player, mm -hmm. is there? Okay. Just those extravaganza shows, like at the Ryman and stuff, yeah, where there's, like, yeah. five there's guitar players. Special <laughs> events, which kind of represent that record, which yeah. is, you know, you know, kind of the little taste of the, of the, of the current community. Um, but, yeah, the touring band is, you know, represented by one person each. And what's been cool about it, I mean, I've done all the tours, except for that one little batch that Cody did, um, you know, with different fiddlers and different mandolin players. And it's neat to see, you know, different folks come in like Stuart Duncan or Michael Cleveland or Billy Contreras or Sierra playing mandolin or now Jake Jolliffe is out there doing some stuff. And it's just, it kind of keeps the music, uh, I don't want to say interesting, but just engaged and, yeah. you know, continually kind of, and... again, we can play with it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a Brian Sutton band? There was. I, I, the, when I made that More I Learn record, that was part of my uh, goal with that record. Again, to, to write more, to sing more, to do more. What felt like kind of solo power stuff. Not just yeah. me by myself, but just me as an artist. Um, and with the intent of having a band. And so the guys that are playing on the record are the folks that I took out on the road. Sam Grisman and Mike Barnett and Casey Campbell. Okay. Um, Sounds great. Yeah. And we had a good time. And, and again, it was the exercise of being vulnerable and singing songs that yep. I wrote in front of people that I'd yep. never really done much of that um, on any other record at least and or any other time in my life, just always being sort of a backup guy, side yep. person. So anyway, that was... Is it something that you're drawn to do or do you just kind of feel like, meh? It's funny, you know, because I keep trying to think I should make another one like, and make another record or dip back into that. Because I do so many other things, like what life feels like a lot of times is three full-time jobs for me between mm -hmm. the sessions and the touring yep. and this teaching thing that's that's kind of kicked in in the last 10 years which is you know pretty close to like is a, that a, a true real, fire thing that you're uh, doing, or? i think well true fire owns the company but the uh, site is called artist works okay and um and that's pretty deep right like yeah. it, it's like a huge there's a lot well of, of information in there yeah hopefully the, yeah and it's a good experience for me and i think people that that are you actively adding to it constantly or? Well, 
over the 10 years, yeah, the curriculum has morphed and changed and grown to what it is, excuse me, what it is now. But the, they're literally day, every day there's new content that I put up that are all in this camp, what we call video exchanges, where the students that want to do it can send, uh, send me a video of them working on something that's within the curriculum or whatever we've just talked about. We go in and out of that. Every you know, day. Well, yeah, I'll usually go, like, that's pr the work of it for me is, is to go and film and kind of bank uh, videos, response yeah. videos. Okay. And so I generally every day will upload whatever is, uh, uh, I work a week out. Like, if you yeah. send a video today, you'll get a response in a week. And so my job is to, within that week to, to stay ahead of it all enough. And, yeah. again, that's another, <laughs> another balancing act, another juggling. Are you aware of how many people are taking the Brian Sutton course? At any given time, like, you know, it's like a lot of subscription stuff where it goes up and down, but it's yeah. it's hovered a little, you know, a little over two thousand, I think. Holy crap! Folks. And that's all over the world, of course. Yeah. And amazing. Yeah, it's a good thing. I yeah. enjoy doing it, but yeah. uh, but that also factors into the, your original question about like, what do I want to do with my time as an artist now that, you know, I've, I'm at this point and I'm, you know. I have done it. I've gone out there with my own band. Oh, I want to keep doing it. That was part of the, the learning process with that was like, yeah, I can do it. Yeah. And it's like a lot of things in life where it's one thing to get it going. It's another thing to keep it going, you know, like any relationship, you know, whatever, like, what are we going to do to sustain this? And it's when, when I started thinking like that, it's like, I don't know that I have bandwidth for that. The, the maintenance of it, the, the fact that now I'm an artist and, you know, need to do this many gigs a year or have this, you know, I don't know. I just, it felt like too much, you know, it's sort of like the guy that, you know, uh, hot rods cars in the garage and then just sells them just so you can go get another <laughs> hunk of something and, and build it. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's sort that's of what a, it feels like. Yeah. Well, especially when you've got a good career in the studio and you're playing with Bela Fleck, it's like, yeah, I, I can understand why that would take a back seat. Yeah. I am fortunate to not feel like I have to rely on touring or being out in front of people to, you know, to make a living happen. Right. Uh, that's if, if and I've, touring as somebody's guitar player is definitely like a lot more low maintenance mm -hmm. bandwidth wise in your brain than it is bringing out your own band where you've got to like deal yeah. with all the crap that you yeah, have to deal you with. You book the hotels and you're the yeah. one that's, everything's in your name. And so, yeah, there's a, I don't want to say it's easier because again, I'm fortunate within the, even the stuff I do, it's not so much just like, here's a guy on the guitar. It's like in the Hot Rise band, I was a member of the band in the Bela Fleck band. It's his gig, but it's, you know, my name is featured on a lot of the, yeah. you know, the festival bookings or whatever, you know, it's just, I'm, I am a, I've been fortunate to have some career equity to cash in on yeah, and man. people to use over the years. And kind of like in jazz, you know, where you have a certain sort of crew of people that, you know, it's, oh, it's cool that this person is playing with these other people. And it's, you know, it's kind of a thing mm -hmm. that happens. And so, you know, that's, I'm, I'm aware that that is something that I can take advantage of and have earned over the years. And, and um, it's worth keeping, you know, so. Yeah, yeah, totally. Whether it's my own thing or, you know, th there are other versions of thoughts of like, maybe it's just, you know, put something new together. It's not so much about me, but maybe a band or like a little trio or something or yeah. just different projects like that. You know, there's, those are fun to think about. Get the telly out, man. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a version <laughs> of it is, you know, you mentioned playing a national. I, I love playing resonator guitars. You do? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thought of. I have this sort of vision of like a real Jerry Reed inspired, oh. you know, sort of take on fiddle tunes or bluegrass tunes and, and, uh, you know, kind of funky, kind of raw, you know, see yeah. where that goes. I'm really, I'm a big fan of that kind of sound. 
Well, thanks for hanging out. And yeah, it's good talking to see you. about all this stuff, man. That's great. Do, do you feel like playing a tune? I mean, hands I, are a little, little uh, quiet today. <laughs> in tune. I still can't uh, believe that guitar is new. Yeah, you should play it. I mean, it, it doesn't sound new either. It's always the hardest to try to pick a tune to play. Uh, here's an old classic. Uh, this will be the uh, Salt Creek old fiddle tune. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Been a pleasure. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Brian Sutton. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast speaking with him. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Music Makers and Soul Shakers is produced at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee by Steve Dawson. Please remember to subscribe to the show and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can find more info on this episode, including show notes and an audio playlist at makersandshakerspodcast.com. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors this season, Ear Trumpet Labs, Union Tube and Transistor, Black Mountain Picks, Isotope, and Spectra 1964. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 